Thanks, choir. It's a harder song to sing when there's clouds. Um, and I, I appreciate the way that you point to the hope we have in God. This is true in worship generally, is that when we allow our lives to intersect with the hope that we have, it can be hard. This is what the Israelites experience in this final note in the book of Exodus. Um, and, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But I do want to say this is the last Sunday that we'll be in Exodus this year. We made it. Um, and we're going to have a two-part finale to this. Um, we're going to take this final section of Exodus for part one. And then I ask you, come back next week for part two. We're going to look at a portion of the book of Hebrews. Um, because I think that's where the story of Exodus ends up pointing. Um, but beginning next week and, and going through the end of 2024, our current plan is to spend time preaching in the New Testament, specifically Mark and 1 John and Ephesians. So if, uh, if you've got any thoughts about those books that you want to dust off and get back into in preparation, Mark, 1 John, and Ephesians are on tap for next year. As for today, um, we're going to work out the resolution to the broken covenant. This is the final movement that we've been looking at in the book of Exodus. And as you remember last week, after Moses came down the mountain with his shining face, uh, he, he gave the Israelites another set of, of the commandments. You didn't read that last week. Um, but then he worked with the Hebrew artisans and priests to construct the tabernacle. Uh, we're skipping chapters 35 through 39, where Exodus records the building of the tabernacle. There's a lot of attention given to the details. And once the people of Israel complete the tabernacle, complete what's called the tent of meeting, God comes to live among them. And it's at this point that we pick up our story in the book of Exodus. We'll be reading from Exodus chapter 40 today, verses 34 through 38. If you'd like to follow along in your Red Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 88 of the Old Testament. This is Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Listen now for God's word to you. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night before the eyes of all the house of Israel on each stage of their journey. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we prepare to enter this text this morning, would you pray with me? Oh, holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it, you make us more holy. You give us words of grace and hope from you. May those words of grace and hope speak through me this morning and speak through, th through us as we live in the world you love, full of grace and truth as your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord was, your word made flesh. Amen. Many of us at some point in our adult life have had the privilege of living with a roommate to whom we were not romantically involved. Um, how many of you have had that privilege that, uh, oh yeah, yep, almost as many as love cookies. Um, roommates can be a risky proposition, as many of you know. Even when you're friends before becoming roommates. 
I remember when I was in the undergraduate dorms as a college freshman, I shared a room with two roommates, and we had between us no more than 200 square feet of space. That's not a lot of room for three 18-year-old boys to share. All the roommates that year were encouraged to write out roommate agreements so that everyone could be on the same page regarding expectations. We needed to know whether our roommates were early risers or night owls. We needed to know uh, whether we had a shared expectation of lights out or a shared expectation of curfew and we wouldn't make any noise. We also needed to delve into touchier subjects like how we felt about having overnight guests or whether there were expectations about drugs or alcohol, um, which you may be 18, but there are a number of different expectations that you come with those to the dorms. Now, when I went to college, I was excited to begin a new adventure. I, I wasn't someone who felt like I needed freedom from my parents. Uh, far from it. I, I enjoyed living with my parents, and I was excited to live here in, in, in college. But I felt like the people who I grew up with, who knew me, had certain expectations about me. And I needed some freedom from those expectations, not to go wild, but in order to figure out who God would have me be. I was excited to embark on some sort of journey of self-discovery. And I knew that for me, this freedom from expectations was also a freedom for something. It was a freedom for beginning the story that I would write with my life, a story that needed a solid foundation. And so for this reason, when we entered into this roommate agreement business, I had some opinions. I had some opinions about what would be healthy for me. I wanted a tidy room, which if you've been in my office, you might laugh at me. Um, because my office, I, I know where all the things are. I'd be waking up in a fog every morning. I wanted a room where I wouldn't be distracted by drugs or alcohol. But roommates are funny. Different roommates are going to have different expectations of what college can be. And during this year of living together, I realized that my roommates, well, they were different people than I was. What could have been a friendship uh, with one particular roommate ended up being sort of a tenuous ceasefire because one roommate was unexpectedly messy, opinionated, and negatively impacted our room wasn't a pleasant experience. We didn't come with shared expectations. Now, I share this story about roommates because God, in a sense, becomes a roommate to the people of Israel. And God's expectations and the people's expectations may not always align. And I say roommate, there may even be a closer intimacy here. Throughout the book of Exodus, there has been language that alludes to God husbanding the people of God, the people of Israel. There's, there's a deeper intimacy, almost spouse-like in its quality. But just like with roommates, spouses often surprise one another with how they live in good and not so good ways. Now, throughout Exodus... We've witnessed this freedom, this freedom from slavery, this freedom for other activities like worshiping and serving God. And there are different expectations that the people of Israel bring to these freedoms and that God brings to these freedoms. And one of the central themes we've seen in how God self-reveals throughout Exodus is that God begins to take on an identity 
as not just being independent of the people, but being for them. We go from God being I am who I am in Exodus 3 to God being I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of slavery in Exodus 20. God doesn't change, but the way that the people of Israel experience God and experience God's presence does. It's as if God is moving closer to them. God is offering them freedom for service and worship. Now, we also witnessed in the wake of the golden calf, the disaster in the conversation where Moses begged God to remain with the people. God's presence is non-negotiable for the people and non-negotiable for Moses. And yet, when God comes down, and you may have noticed this in the passage, nobody could come into the tent of meeting. When God's glory fills the tabernacle, not even Moses could approach it. The Israelites have God's presence among them, but even the most righteous leader is unable to commune with a holy God. There's a vast difference in who God is and in who we are to the point that we can't even be in God's presence, despite being, as Kent says, in the holy of holies here. I wonder if you can imagine how the children of Israel must have felt at that time must have had so many conflicting emotions crashing within them. On the one hand, God is with them. This is something to be celebrated. The Holy One who brought them out of Egypt and promised to lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey has taken nobody can enter while God's presence is upon it. For me, this is a God vastly different than I would have expected. The tent that God resides in is a work of art. It's something where I would have loved to have seen it. I would have loved to have seen it reflect the glory of the one who resides in it. And yet, nobody could come in when God was in there. The tabernacle was the product of a massive amount of work and effort. You may remember Bezalel and Aholiab several weeks ago, back in Exodus 31, who, who were skilled artists having been given the spirit of the Lord. And they were given a ton of expensive material. And all of this gets dedicated to God's home, which doesn't invite visitors. All of it is dedicated to to the tabernacle, which is set up to mirror the world of the Garden of Eden, the last time that God's presence was with human beings. It harkens back to a time when all was right between human beings and God, pointing us to full fellowship and communion, but we're not quite there at the end of Exodus. There's still a vast chasm God does things we don't understand. To use a phrase popularized by the theologian Karl Barth, who worked at the beginning of the 1900s, God is still holy other. That's holy with a W, not, you know, H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. Entirely different than we are. This is one of the reasons why no matter how much we learn about God, we still can't come close to grasping the full character and glory of our Lord. It's like trying to hold sand or water in your hands. It keeps slipping out. And the more we learn about God, the more questions we have. Even as basic a doctrine as the Trinity can tie our mind in knots, 
And by the way, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, could you stay after and like explain it to me a little bit? Because it is confusing. As one of my theology professors would tell me, God is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be adored. This is one of the reasons, friends, that we've spent so long in Exodus, that we've been wandering in the wilderness the entire year. When we go to the New Testament, we see in Jesus Christ that God came to our world in a way that we could begin to understand. Jesus' parables may be confusing, but at least we've got some sort of way of getting at them. But in Exodus, we see quite clearly the transcendence of God, the difference of God. God's holy otherness is quite evident. Sure, it's easy to see, I think, the mercy and grace that Jesus Christ brings through dying on our behalf, through wiping away sin. But when we spend time in Exodus and we spend time in the Hebrew Bible, we begin to note the vast chasm between us and God. And we begin to see the beauty of God's grace in stooping down and joining us in our humanity. That the enormity of the distance between us and God, while we could never bridge that gap, God is willing to begin to draw near to us. God is willing to self-reveal as the Lord, our God, not just I am who I am. God being wholly other manifests in all sorts of different ways then and now. See, for the children of Israel, they're very attentive to God's presence in the tabernacle. And, and God shows how the ways of the Lord are much different than human ways by leading them throughout the wilderness for 40 years. It is not a 40-year-long journey to get from Egypt into the Holy Land, friends. Now, that 40 years was because of a whole host of other reasons you can read about in the book of Numbers, which, by the way, we won't be preaching on Numbers next year. Um, but, but nobody in their right mind would take the 40-year path when the wilderness could be crossed much more quickly. And I think in that way, the Hebrews aren't all that unlike us. God's ways are so different than we might want them to be. Maybe you've tried to listen to God's voice. You've wanted God to speak from heaven and tell you what to do, how to live, why something happened. And you might think, you know, this would be easier now than then because we've got God's presence with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. But when we do hear from God, it's often something we wouldn't expect, something we wouldn't choose. It's something strangely alien. And yet when we look back and we see the ways that God has spoken, they don't always feel good, but we can see a logic to them. We can see that God works all things together for the good of those that love God. It's a promise. It may feel like the depth of night. Joy comes with the morning. And this is to be expected because God is different than us. God is wholly other. While some of this chasm between us and God is due to our brokenness, a lot of it is also due to the glory and majesty the God we serve has. And although none of us, no matter how righteous, can commune with our holy God out of our own good works, 
that doesn't mean that God can't choose to come down and commune with us. God is holy other, but God chooses to live with and to guide the children of Israel in ways that they can begin to comprehend. So the Israelites follow where God leads, even when that means going in circles around an unfriendly wilderness. They trust that the God who freed them from slavery won't give up on them now. That God that gave them freedom from the Egyptian bondage will ensure they are freed to worship and serve the Lord. So I wonder, as we reflect on this passage, how God is leading us today. While you can't see the tent and the cloud and the fire in the same way that the Israelites could, you can listen for the still, small voice of God. It's a voice that is hard to hear. It takes practice. It's a voice that God chooses to speak in so as not to overwhelm us with the glorious presence of our Lord. It's a voice that sometimes speaks through scripture, sometimes speaks through fellow believers. Sometimes it's, this voice speaks through the beauty of creation. Other times it speaks through what I can only describe as God's spirit flooding your body. Maybe you've experienced that before. I invite you to practice being attentive to this spirit so that you too can be freed to worship and serve the Lord that set you free from sin and death. So that you can be freed for in the same way that you've been freed from. While I was completing that roommate agreement back in college, I don't think I listened to this voice very well. I was a little bit more prickly than I needed to be. I think that that prickliness pushed my roommates to close themselves off more than they otherwise would have. Perhaps it would have been, you know, not a lifelong friendship regardless because roommates are hard to be friends with sometimes. But had, I think, I listened to the strange prompting of God's spirit, a prompting that might not have insisted on my own ideas of what was best, I may have developed closer and more lasting relationships with these folks that I was locked in a 200-square-foot room with. I invite you, friends, to trust in this holy other nature of the God that we serve. I invite you to listen to the promptings of God's Spirit, which, though they may be strange, will align with the God that we've come to know and love in Scripture and I invite us to recognize the beauty and majesty of God's glory and recognize that we can't, by our own ability, enter into God's presence. That's why we need God to come down among us. And that's what we'll be talking more about next week in part two of this two-part finale episode of this series. I ask that you would listen to the still small voice of God. May it be so. Amen.